for, she's gone. Thank you for just sharing from your heart and your story. I think it really fits with what we want to communicate today. And so first of all, we're making a big deal of Palm Sunday. And I think we, we, next year, let's make it even bigger deal. Let's give these to even the adults. Like everyone gets a palm as long as you promise to do good and not evil with them. I do want to answer, why is Palm Sunday a deal? Like, what, what's up with this? And so, I remember at, at a previous church, I don't know if I could have answered this question quite as well. So, at a previous church, we actually had a thing on Palm Sunday where we would do a combined churches, a short service at the courthouse. We were all downtown churches. And so we had a, like a 20, 30-minute thing, prayer time at the courthouse steps, uh, and it was all different denominations. The Baptists brought the music. The Episcopal people brought like their, their fancy uh, uh, walking thing, and uh, Crozier, I think they called it. Like everyone kind of had a different shtick with it. And um, so, so it was kind of an interesting deal. We even had the mayor do part of the service to pray and all that. And so the reporter came from the newspaper. And, and he went up to me, I'm not sure why he picked me, and said, so tell me about like what Palm Sunday's about and what, you know, why you're doing the service. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where like you suddenly thought this could go in the newspaper. And my mind just went blank. It like emptied of everything. And I, I'm, I'm like, I mean, I went to seminary. I, I should know how to answer this question, but I just could not form any co- cogent words in that moment. And so, and the, I mean, the guy felt bad for me. I think, I'm sure he was a Christian. It was an easy question. He wasn't, it wasn't a trick. And he, he started suggesting answers to help me out. And um, I, I'm sure eventually he just went on and let me ask someone else. Thank you. <laughs> I become more and more convinced over the years that Palm Sunday is a big deal. You know, it's not just happened to be the Sunday before Easter, right? That's not why we're doing this. That in and of itself, God was doing something on that day. That it was part of God's ultimate salvation strategy. And so, we got to think about how when Jesus entered entered Jerusalem to the cheering of the crowds and all that, How did he go from that to five days later being nailed to a cross? That's that's the key to thinking this through. So before Palm Sunday, Jesus tended to keep a somewhat low profile. Yes, he would do miracles, but oftentimes he would tell people, don't tell anyone, it's not time yet, right? Or he would pull them aside so that not as many saw what he was doing. Or he'd end, says one time, he, they had to, him and his disciples had to live out in the wilderness because the crowds kept flocking to him. <clears throat> Excuse me. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus went public. Right? He, he rode in on a donkey on purpose. He was declaring in a way that everyone would know he was the Messiah. And in Jewish terminology, the Messiah was the king of the Jews, the God's people. And so he goes there, and right, the crowds are cheering. They love it. Hooray, the king has come to save us. 
what they've been waiting for was going to happen. But not quite everyone was happy. When he gets to the temple, the temple leadership, the high priest and the others amongst the, the Jewish leadership, they were not happy. They saw what was going on. They knew exactly what was, was taking place. And they said, teacher, you got to st- stop this down. And Jesus says, uh-uh. It's time, it, you know, if I tried to, the, the rocks themselves would cry out. It is time. The king of the Jews has come. And so they decided he had to die. John 18, 14 says it was Caiaphas, the high priest, who would advise the Jews that it would be expedient, it would be better that one man would die for the people. Right? They, they feared what would happen if the crowds really saw Jesus as the king, what expectations they would have, and how that would affect the, 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 their relationship with Rome, who did not like the idea of kings suddenly sprouting up. They, they, so there was an there was a understandable fear of this could be the end of our, our position we have with the Romans. So over the week, they tried to take Jesus down a peg. They hit him with, with theological questions. They hit him with, with political questions. And unlike me, Jesus was quick on his feet. And he had the answers. And he kept shooting him down. And in the end, he actually gained esteem even more. And, and so it didn't work to, to take him down. So they couldn't arrest him publicly because the crowds were, were on board. So they had him arrested in the middle of the night, aided by one of Jesus' own disciples who led them to their place. They put him on trial in the middle of the night, illegally. And they, they pestered him with all kinds of charges and things. In the end, they, they just said it. Tell us or not, are you the Messiah? He says, yeah, and one day you're going to see me riding on the clouds. Then you will know for sure. And that was, that was it. That's all they, all they needed. Blasphemy, he must be put to death. Problem. They didn't have that kind of authority. Uh, they were a client people under the Romans. The Sanhedrin had authority over like religious questions, but the Romans didn't trust them with any real authority. And so to get done what they wanted done, they had to go to Pilate, the Roman governor who was in Jerusalem at the time, who was keeping a watch over things during the Passover festival that was taking place with the huge crowds. And so they bring him to Pilate. Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate wanted nothing to do with some religious question that they were fighting over. But the Jews said, the leaders said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Verse 32, this is John 18, says something interesting. It says, this is to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken by what kind of death he was going to die. So if Jesus would be put to death by the the religious leaders, the Jewish people, how, how, how would they do it? How did they kill people, execute people? Stoning, right? But the scriptures talked about how the one to come would be pierced for our transgressions. It, it talks about how in Psalm 22 that he would be lifted up and, and, and surrounded by his enemies. Jesus said, the Son of Man comes and he will be raised up. That's describing crucifixion. 
the execution style of the Romans. So Pilate has to deal with this reluctantly. And so now that gets to the, the questions that we, the passages that we read. And so Pilate is a Roman governor. He goes right at it. Are you the king of the Jews or not? Right, he goes directly for the big question. And Jesus, his, his response is interesting. He says, are you asking me of your own accord? Or is it just something someone said to you? Now, you can see that as Jesus dodging the question. But, but here's what I wonder. Jesus would actually tell people, right? And, and I wonder if Pilate had this question on a spiritual level. If Pilate was wondering if it could be true, would Jesus have said, yeah, yeah, I'm him, Pilate? Because he, he did that for the woman in Samaria, right? The Samaritan woman, she wanted to know, and Jesus says, I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. Instead, Pilate says, what do I care? Am I a Jew? This is not my deal. He's just dealing with this as a problem. And so Jesus goes on to say, yes, uh, my kingdom, though, is not of this world. Where did Pilate get his authority as governor? It was issued to him from a faraway city where sat Tiberius Caesar. So he was the ruler in Jerusalem by authority of one far away in a city. Jesus says, my authority as king goes even further away, though maybe not so far. My authority comes from God. That's the basis on which he was a king from a place far away. Pilate doesn't get into that, but that's where Jesus is, 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 is teaching this. And he says, um, the purpose I come is to bear witness to the truth. And ultimately, Pilate says, what is the truth? How can I know what's true? People were always lying to him. Right? That's what happens when you're the Roman governor. Uh, why should he believe that this guy was really a king? What reason would he give? Nevertheless, he concludes he's not a threat to the Roman Empire, right? You know, he, he knows this is about the petty egos of the high priests and the religious leaders. And so Pilate takes steps to try to, to free Jesus and to get out of the situation. One is he tries to offer him, to free him as a gesture of goodwill. At Passover, they would, might offer a prisoner to, to go free. Instead, spurred on by the... the the religious leaders, the crowds call for someone else to be freed. Barabbas. Set free Barabbas instead. All right, then he tries a different thing. He tries to do a lesser punishment. I'll just have him flogged, right? That'll, that'll set the score. So now flogging is a pretty serious thing. You take a whip and you slash it across their back, ripping off flesh with each, each strike. The, the determination was that 40 lashes would kill a man. So the practice was to do 40 minus 1. 39 lashes, take him to the edge of death. The, the soldiers kind of got in on this too, and it says they, they took the opportunity to mock Jesus, right? So they put a crown of thorns on his head. They would beat him, spit on him. Hail, King of the Jews! More and more people are hailing him, King of the Jews, whether they're intent in their heart or not. Um, Pilate again then tries. The, that didn't work, though. The priest insists he, he has to die, Pilate tries again to question Jesus, to look for some way to, 
to some justification to free him. And he says, don't you realize I have the authority to have you crucified? (laughs) And Jesus says, you only have this authority because it was given to you by my father. Pilate, you're not as in charge as you think you are. See, there's an irony going on that the passage shows. Like, Jesus is standing before judgment before Pilate, but really, Pilate is standing before judgment before the one who will judge all mankind. That's the irony of what's going on. In the end, Pilate again tries to to free him, but the religious leaders go over his head and they say, if you release this man, you are no friend to Caesar. Right? You, you see the threat. If, if, if he lets Jesus go, they, they write to Tiberius Caesar, and Caesar's going to say, you let someone who proclaimed he's a king go free? It would be the end of Pilate's rule. He had no choice. So he gave Jesus over to be crucified. Two others that day, one on his right, one on his left. Um, it says Pilate... Um, probably just moved on with his day. It says in one of the accounts that he took water and washed his hand. It says, this is not my decision. I'm just giving you what you want. Pilate did take one last shot, though. He, he, he put the sign above his head. It was normal to have a sign above the head of someone being crucified to say what crime they had committed. And so what he put above his head is, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And not just in one language, but in three languages. Aramaic, the language of the, the Jewish people at that time, the common people. He put it in Greek, the, la- the common language of peoples who traveled from afar. So a lot of people would speak Greek. In fact, this account was written in Greek. And then also the language of Latin. The Roman soldiers would know that. So, that. so that everyone in the city would recognize one of those three languages. And it's quite possible every person in that city would have seen Jesus and the sign above his head. You see, God was engineering a public declaration of what was happening. Even though people couldn't understand it, he, it was declaring the kingdom of God had come, and they put him to death, right? The one God had sent um, was going to be killed. And, and anyone who could look on that guy on the cross and think he really is the king, what happened on that day, the day, the, the day of, we'd call Good Friday, was not a tragedy. It was all part of God's design. How would the death of Jesus be anything other than a travesty of justice or the result of petty politics among the Jerusalem temple leadership? How could that be? How could this be anything more than just another unjust death? Because God was behind it. It was his king he had sent, and the king had come to save us. I want to offer you a, a metaphor. Just know this is a metaphor, an extended metaphor, on, on how Jesus' death might have 
how it was different than we sometimes think of it. And so it involves thinking about human sin, human sinfulness, as an infection, a disease. We're, we're familiar with a, a, a virus that spreads throughout the world. Well, imagine human sin as that kind of thing. It's, it's a virus that started with two people in a garden. Adam and Eve were the first ones. They, that was, it didn't leak from a lab. It came out of a garden. And so Adam and Eve, um, they got it when they made a decision that they would not follow what God said, but they would go their own direction. You might think, well, all they did was eat, eat a piece of fruit. But what they were really doing is they were saying they will determine for themselves what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. Instead of listening to God, they would say, I know better than you, and I'm going to go my own way. That's the virus of human sinfulness. And that virus has spread to every person ever. That is, it's 100% infectivity. Every person who's ever lived has said effectively the same thing. Isaiah 53 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. God, I I know you gave me life. I know you say this. I'm going to go the direction I want to go. Now, the symptoms of this disease, that's the virus, but the symptoms can vary from person to person. Human sinfulness will lead some into theft, addiction, violence, adultery, murder. Right? We see that all around us. But, but the other symptoms, maybe they're more subtle. For some, it's gossip and, de- and deceptiveness towards others, a false front. For some, it's greed or just plain selfishness. We can't tell who's got the disease. We can't see the virus, right? We, we don't know. And Jesus said, likewise, this virus can be like that. You, you, it can be hard to see your own sin, right? It's, it's e- Jesus says it's easy to see it in others. You know, you look at someone else, and their sin is like a, a log in their eye, and you want to pull their log out. But he says what you, what you don't realize is there's a, a – actually, no, I'm sorry, it's a speck. I messed it up. You see, you can see clearly even a speck in their eye, but what you don't see is there's a log in your own eye, a plank, right? We can miss our own sinfulness. We can think that we're okay. I'm okay because I'm not as bad as they are, but the virus has taken root deep within our being. It has infected all of us, and therefore the morbidity rate for the infection of human sin is 100%. When Adam and Eve first made that decision, they were living in the Garden of Eden where they had access to the the tree of life through which they could live with God forever. But after that decision, though, they were evicted from the garden. They no longer had access to that, that tree. And so now death becomes the ultimate Respond, or, uh, consequence for getting this virus, the ultimate prognosis. 
And more than just human physical death, we are under quarantine. Right? Because of human sinfulness, we cannot bring our disease into God's presence. God is pure, perfect, holy, 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 and good in all his ways. He cannot let us bring our disease into his presence. It doesn't work. When Isaiah, one of the prophets, was taken up into the heavenly throne room, the, his response is, woe, woe to me when he saw God in his holiness. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people on unclean lips. Do you see what he's saying? I am infected. I can't be here. Remember what it felt like back two years ago when you walked into a restaurant and you forgot to wear your mask? Right? That's, that's sort of that feeling that Isaiah has, right? I, I, oh my God, I don't belong here. And God gave him effectively a mask. He gave him a, a way to, to be in his presence that says God provided a coal and it touched his lips and, and therefore he was able to, to stay. But that was only a temporary solution. And so we're under quarantine from God. We are infected and infectious and, and, and it impacts other people. And because of this quarantine, we are cut off from the life of God that sustains our very existence. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of our sin is death. And so, since we're all infected, we're all under this same sentence. And it's more than just physical death. It's this picture of being cut off from God's presence forever and ever and ever. That's what it means when the Bible talks about um, Jesus describes it as being shut out from God's presence into the, the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. If God is the source of all joy, goodness, love, peace, patience, kindness, that's, that's God's spiritual, spiritual spirit's qualities. And we are excised from that. What do we have left? Hate, envy, selfishness, greed, forever and ever roiling in our own being. That is the fate unless a cure is provided. The good news is that though we were under quarantine, God did not abandon us. The story of the Bible is the story of God interacting with men and women who are so infected. You may think, the the Bible has a lot of stories about bad things happening. Yeah, and that's good news because it says God did not give up on us even though we deserved it. If you look around our society, we see in the news all kinds of, of horrible things that happen. Aren't we glad God has not abandoned us to our own what we deserve, to get our own desserts, Instead, he came into the world and he'd been working. He gave temporary solutions for a time, but he was working towards a cure. And in this way, the cure would come at a great cost. Despite our infection with our sin, God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to bring the cure. And so Jesus came into this infected world. He broke quarantine. And he walked in our midst 
And he lived a fully human life in a sin-infected world. Rather than socially isolate himself, he drew close to the broken and the hurting in our world. He was called a friend of sinners. Right? He, he was a friend of the people most, of, most affected by the disease. And he came face to face with all of human sinfulness, with anger, greed, power plays, and true spiritual evil. But yet, he himself remained uninfected. He was the only human being never to be infected by sin. He always stayed true to his Father and walked in, in the, the, the love of God. But, in order to bring the cure, he would have to let the, the disease touch him, come upon him. Isaiah 53 describes how God would bring the solution, how God would bring the cure. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He would give the cure by taking the disease upon himself. And so what's going on on this Good Friday when before Pilate is the king, is going to allow all the weight of sin to go upon his own shoulders. As he's being crucified, Jesus takes the disease upon himself. It says, he became, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, the one who never sinned endured the effects of disease on behalf of those who could not endure it. There was a three-hour period on the cross. It says darkness came over the whole land. You see, Jesus was quarantined from God. And God gave a visible sign of that. He was faced the complete social and spiritual isolation. But in taking the virus upon himself, Jesus brought the antibodies that would be the cure we needed. He would develop the one cure that could bring healing for this disease of human sinfulness. Moreover, he paid the price fully himself. The, 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 the cure is developed at great cost, but he paid it all on the cross. So now he can give out the cure for free. The blood of Christ now carries the antibodies that can defeat sin once and for all. And God has made the cure available to any who would receive it, to any who will put their faith and trust in the Savior and receive the healing he is offering. It says the blood of Jesus can wash away all of our sin and take it away from us. The, what it does is the cure goes deep into our hearts. It's not just a, a, a patch or a pill it's an injection that goes into the core of our heart where our sin has taken root. So God will not give that to anyone against their will. We have to, to be willing to receive the cure. We have to be willing to let him come into our life through his spirit 
and, and apply that cure to us directly. 2 Corinthians 5 says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Yeah. So God would have all people receive it and be saved, but he does not mandate this cure. What does it require to receive it? First of all, we acknowledge our sinfulness, our inability to cure ourselves. We cannot fix the situation. We cannot just decide, I can be better. I can stop doing the bad things. I can, I can somehow, I can summon the self-discipline to stop, stop sinning and somehow fix this. No, it's acknowledging the cure is something I have to receive from, from some other source. Second thing, it means believing and putting your trust that the king has come to save us. Right? It, it means believing the sign that was above Jesus' head, that he really was the king that God had sent. It means trusting your life into his hands. So it's acknowledging, A, acknowledging your, your need for a cure, believe, believing, and then C, commit yourself to his service, to become his disciple, to follow him, to, to give what you know of yourself to what you know of him. That is the, the, the way the cure comes into our life. The good news is the cure is 100% effective. Right? It's, if you do that, you will be with God forever. You will enter into eternal life, into a new relationship. Uh, we have it on our, our thing, right? If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He will start to do a work within you that will enable you to, to overcome sin. Now, the cure is 100% effective, but the symptoms do not all disappear right away. Right? We know that the work has begun in us. It says, if he began a good work in you, will carry on to completion. We know he'll finish. If he started it, he'll finish it. But, but those who follow Christ still struggle against our sinful nature as we walk with the Savior so even while we remain symptomatic, disciples of Jesus are called to, 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 to follow him, to live for him, to, to exemplify him as we can. We know that he's at work healing us, even as we struggle to live out what it means to, to follow him and love God. And we rejoice as we see the cure at work. So friends, this morning, this could be your opportunity to receive the cure. It could be you came here to maybe watch one of the little ones sing, but God brought you here because he wants you to receive the cure in your life, to say yes to Christ, to acknowledge your sin, your sinfulness, and your need for a Savior, to believe that the one they nailed on a cross really was the Son of God and that he was raised from the dead, and, and see to commit to give your life to him, and trust in him as best you know how, knowing that you'll, you'll still struggle and you're not promising to, fix, to, to never do wrong again. So to, to believe and to commit, this morning, God may have brought you here to take that step. It says in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven.
gone. Forgiven. Yeah. Amen. And you become part of His kingdom. He is your king and you will follow Him for the rest of your life. So if, 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 if you've never taken that step, I encourage you to give it all your thought. It's the most important decision you will make to yield your life to Jesus Christ. And it may be you need to think about it. And, I, and that's okay. It, it's an important decision. I would encourage you, don't let this drop. If God's tugging on your heart, talk to someone. You're, you're welcome to talk to me, but you may know others, others who are, are believers in Christ who, who can help you get to that point. To What would it mean for me to make this decision? You don't have to say anything fancy. You don't have to come forward and pray at the steps. You can if you want. Um, but you could write in your pew as we sing this next song, you can yield your heart to Jesus Christ and say yes to him and step into eternal life. It may be, at some point, you've made that decision before, but, well, you wonder if you need a booster shot, right? You, you, you made that decision, but you, you don't always feel like you're following through, and you've stumbled, and you've not lived up to that commitment. Maybe this morning, it's time to re-enlist, to say to, say to Jesus once more, you are my king. You are the one who brought me from life to death. Um, re reinvigorate my, my life in you. Whichever it is, friends, Jesus Christ is the King who came to save us. Let us turn and trust in Him. Father, I thank You that You did not abandon us in our brokenness and sin, but instead You sent Your Son to bring life to us. May as we sing this song, may as we... we sit in our pew. May we respond to us in our inner being and know where we stand with you this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and sing our closing song.